through to your kingdom. We pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, we've been uh, talking a few weeks about the gospel of Mark and about some of the folks in the time of Jesus who get a little bit stuck in their ways. And I, I remember this story that um, I heard a few years ago. I'm pretty sure I heard it on NPR, which is where I hear like 50% of the things that I ever talk about. But at a previous church, I used this story. And when I was done, a whole bunch of people came and told me that they heard the story used by a pastor in a previous church. So honestly, I have no idea where this story came from or even if it actually happened. Uh, there's an old Native American saying, I don't know if this story happened, but I know it's true. So anyways, here's how I remember it. A woman grew up cooking with her mother. And when she was young, she remembers learning this lesson about cooking the Christmas ham. Her mother would always cut the end off of the ham before she put it into the roasting sheet. And at some point, the daughter learned to cook herself. And when she moved out, she started her own family and she would always do the same thing. She would cut off the end of the ham before she put it into the roasting pan. And she would tell people this story about how cutting the end off helped release the juices of the ham. And it made the ham taste so much better. So one year, her mother came early on Christmas Day to help her with the cooking. And she noticed her daughter take the ham and cut the end off. And she asked, why are you doing that? And the daughter responded, because it, that's how you taught me. It releases the juices, remember? And the mother laughed. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but you always did it that way. Yeah, the mother replied, I always did it because our roasting pan was too small to fit an entire ham. See, now is the part where everybody goes, what a good story. But I saw some nodding heads, so I know that some people have heard this story before. Uh, there's quite a bit of truth in this story, though, whether it happened that way or not. And it's the kind of lesson that I think helps us understand Jesus's ministry, especially in the Gospel of Mark. You see, sometimes folks get stuck in their way and they're sure that there is a right way to do it and that they ought not to change that way. Sometimes they have really good reasons for it. Believing that the ham juices would be released and saturate the ham is not a terrible reason to do something. What we find in the Gospel of Mark is that so often Jesus is trying to challenge people who are set in this mindset. He is trying to get people to see the kingdom of God at hand and that some of the old ways aren't gonna cut it anymore. And a lot of folks just simply do not want to listen to him. They're stuck in their ways. So the advice he gives his followers, including us, is to try it again and again and again, because folks may be pretty set in their ways. They may have had time to come up with justifications for why they do the things they do. We've even heard stories about folks in Jesus's time who maybe live in fear of threats about what might happen if things are disrupted. 
but none of that will be able to stand in the way of the kingdom of God. So let's hear our scripture today from Mark chapter 6. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed by their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. May God bless this reading. So, so far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom, a kingdom unlike the kingdoms of this world. And so far, we have talked about the structures that he is challenging the religious leaders who are stuck in their ways and those villages that have been threatened and terrorized by the Roman political powers. And it seems that these two forces are what stand in staunchest resistance to what Jesus is doing. In fact, if you read a bit ahead of our verse today and you get to chapter eight, you will read that Jesus is acknowledging exactly these two powers. He tells the disciples, do not eat the bread of the Pharisees and the bread of Herod the religious leaders and the political systems of his time. And the disciples don't get it. I often wonder if we get it. But there's this thing that is repeating itself in Mark. In the first chapter, the first four chapters of Mark, Jesus goes out, performs healing, he preaches good news, and then he retreats to the sea. In the next four chapters, Jesus is in a new town, Gerasa. He heals some folks, casts out some demons, proclaims the kingdom, and then the locals get mad. So he retreats to be alone by himself. Now we are in a third section of the book, and again, there is a process of going out, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. Except in this section, it's not Jesus who's doing this. This time he is sending the disciples out, two by two, into the world. And knowing how this has gone so far, it is no wonder that Jesus includes in this other part about what to do when you're not welcome. Because are you noticing the pattern? Go into a place, proclaim the kingdom, 
wear out your welcome. Because those proclaiming the kingdom of God are not always going to be welcome. Sometimes they're going to meet people who are set in their ways. Those casting out the demons of exclusion and hate and violence and fear, especially when they disrupt a comfortable equilibrium, will upset people. These folks have told themselves stories about why they need to be exclusive or about why the fear needs to be answered. To appease a God who demands something of us before we can be loved. Or they tell themselves the story of what will happen if they step out of line. So the lesson Jesus gives us is it turns out that you don't generally get to people on the first try. That's why there's this pattern. That's why there's the sending and the retreating and the sending and the retreating over and over again. And even today, this story of the sending of the 12 two by two comes alongside a story of rejection, of Jesus telling them a prophet will not be welcomed in his hometown. Because the mission is not a one-time thing. It is a constantly renewing thing. It is a thing that takes time, a lot of time. In fact, sometimes it works for a while and then it suddenly doesn't work. Sometimes what used to be the most efficient tool is no longer the best tool. The well-worn paths of how we've done things no longer are the best ways to do them. And so this process that Jesus calls the disciples to takes time. It's not really for everybody. It takes effort and persistence. Jesus comes proclaiming a new kingdom and he doesn't stop after one announcement, but rather the proclamation is constant to the point where folks around Jesus are saying, again with this kingdom talk, but the mission is not a one-time thing. It's not even a series of seminars. It is a lifetime work seeking to disrupt the spirits of the age which stand in opposition to all God wants for creation. Followers of Jesus need to be ready for all of the work that it will take. And not just the work, but the rejection. Be ready, he tells them, to knock the dust off your feet and move on. Proclaiming the kingdom is not an easy task. Those who do it will not always be welcomed. Proclaiming the kingdom of God means being in it for the long haul. It means figuring out not just being sent once, but being sent over and over and over again. So when I was living in Tennessee in grad school, I got really interested in the civil rights movement. You know, when you think about the great expressions of American religious life, it's hard not to look at leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and and all of the great work they did. But living in Tennessee, you you got to be there. Like you got to be at a place where there were lunch counter sit-ins. You got to see what actually happened. And you got to see some of the behind the scenes work. And one of the things that has stuck with me One of the things that I learned most is that when you look at the events, the Montgomery bus boycott, the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Act, those things were all the result of years, if not decades of work. They didn't just happen. 
So a few weeks ago, I mentioned a place called the Highlander School as a place where the civil rights movement was organized. I talked about icons and uh, Pete Seeger, the famous folk musician. Well, the Highlander School was founded in Eastern Tennessee in the 1930s by this guy named Miles Horton. And in his autobiography, which is called The Long Haul, he writes about the work and the dedication that it took to get the civil rights movement up off of the ground. It turns out the church was not the first option for organizing a mass movement in the American South. Uh, these people at the Highlander School were trying to figure out who in the communities in the South knows a lot of people and who knows what's going on. And so they went and visited with a bunch of hairdressers. Because let's be real, who knows what's going on in the community? But eventually they started recruiting these black ministers and they began training them in these organizing principles. And they were able to lead this movement. Decades of preparation led to it. But when I think about Miles Horton's work in his autobiography, and when I think about what is important to learn about the kingdom of God from it, comes from how Horton understood time. You see, Miles Horton believed that there are two different kinds of time. Movement time and institutional time. What he means by that is that you cannot control when movements are ready to take off. You can't control when something is ready to begin. So we all know the story that Rosa Parks sat in a bus in Montgomery in 1955 and refused to give up her seat, sparking one of the most famous boycotts in American history, the Montgomery bus boycott. But what is also known is that she wasn't the first person to get in trouble for refusing to give up her seat. There are many reasons why the actions of the people before her didn't spark a larger movement, why they didn't get a reaction from the, from the society and culture around them. Sometimes it's, we tell stories about personal decisions or traits of the women. One had a child out of wedlock and there was a fear that that would reflect poorly on the movement. But what Horton would say is that the reason those events did not create the ripples that Park's actions did was because of the time. Namely, that it wasn't yet movement time. So for Horton, those who want to be about change in the world need to know what time it is. Is it institutional time? Or is it movement time? And Horton further complicates this. You can't control which one it is. You can just react to what's going around. You can either fuel the movement if you're in that time, or you can prepare for it if it is not time yet, hence institutional time. So I experienced this firsthand when I was actually living in Tennessee. In 2010, I hopped on a bus in Nashville with a few hundred people and joined over 200,000 individuals for a protest and march in Washington, D.C. So the point of this march was to reignite the movement for immigration reform in our country, something that I care deeply about. I grew up in a border state. It's an issue that has affected my life and my family. So the march 
was a logical success, a logistical success. Hundreds of thousands of people marching, important speakers, some media coverage, but it, it didn't really ignite all that much attention to the issue. So the goal was to get people to start talking about this again, and it didn't really do that. You just can't ignite a movement that way. It appears on its own. And that's what happened. So organizers of the protest could not have predicted that just over a month later, Arizona, my home state, would pass an incredibly strict immigration bill, Senate Bill 1070, that went further than any state had ever tried to go in enforcing immigration laws themselves. And this event sparked massive protests around the country, calling for more humane and reasonable immigration reform. And suddenly, the movement was on. Suddenly, immigration reform was in the news again. And then Congress did something about it, and we never talked about it again. You got to keep going over and over and over again. And if you stick with the kingdom of God long enough, proclaiming love and a release from fear and hatred, you are going to have to get used to the fact that sometimes the world is ready to listen, and sometimes they are not. Sometimes you will be welcomed, and sometimes you will not. Sometimes you will be in movement time and everything will be moving swimmingly and you'll have so much momentum and sometimes you will not. Sometimes religious leaders and the politicians will be happy to support you and sometimes they will ask you to knock it off. But you're disturbing the peace. Knowing which you are in is important. Because the kingdom of God is generally opposed to those things which believe that nothing needs to change. That we have already arrived. Because the kingdom of God, while it has drawn close, is still arriving, is still emerging all around us. What has worked in the past is not ever the final step. There will always be need for some change. There will always be folks for whom change is the last thing they want. So if you are about proclaiming the kingdom of God, get ready for a lifetime of work. It's not for everybody. It takes time and persistence. But we are being sent out again and again to a world that needs to hear a message of love and compassion and grace and mercy. We are being sent out often two by two, sometimes on our own, sometimes in larger groups to continue to proclaim the news that Jesus brought to us, that the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and hear the good news. You will be sent and sent and sent and sent again. So let us be prepared to spread the message that Jesus gives us to dust off our shoes as we leave those places where it is no longer welcome. And to know that whether we succeed or fail, we worship a God who continues to be faithful. Let us pray. Well, holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for the chance to be your servants, for those who were called into this world for those who are empowered, emboldened, who are 
filled with the Spirit. We give you thanks today, O God, and pray that in all things we might continue to proclaim your good news to a world that is weary and tired, for a world that is in need of your good news. We pray all of this knowing that you, O holy God, are faithful and walk with us at all times. We pray this in your name. Amen.